Greetings, all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, uh, this is kind of a hiatus week here in terms of uh, the economy and the politics after some furious events of recent weeks, elections and uh, railroad uh, uh, anti-strike legislation, etc. Um so uh, I want to talk about a couple things. The big uh, big week will be next week, so stay tuned in here next week because we'll be talking about the latest Consumer Price Index report that comes out next week and then the, the latest Fed, Federal Reserve uh, decision on, on rate hikes next week. So this is going to be a pretty important week next week. Uh, that will have an impact on uh, 2023 in a significant way going forward, right? So uh, make sure you tune in next week. But we'll talk a little bit about that. I want to talk about inflation here today, particularly the producer price index that came out. Producer prices are goods and services that are charged to businesses by other businesses, that usually businesses then, if they can, pass on into consumer prices. So what happens with the producer prices, and the report comes out, you know, before the CPI report next week came out today, PPI came out today, uh, is kind of important for where things might be going with consumer prices. Uh, so um, I want to talk about that a little bit because uh, – uh, that report uh, has some serious uh, issues in it, um, concerns about food prices. Just to give you a preview, vegetable prices in one month up 43%. Meat prices up as well. Food prices going up. Oh, okay, well, we'll come back to that. Energy prices going down, but let's, let's talk about that um, in a little more detail shortly. Uh, I also want to talk about uh, uh, the real economy and the consumer and uh, the report that came out from the Federal Reserve uh, on uh, consumer credit, consumer debt growth here. Uh, this is important uh, for the real economy and all the talk about slowdown coming Pretty much a consensus here on the business media uh, by economists and pundits and so forth about, uh, oh, recession is definitely coming early next year. Well, surprise, surprise, you know, as if we didn't know that, as if we haven't already been in it, at least uh, those segments of the economy that have to do with consumers and uh, median income folks and below, they've been in the recession since the beginning of the year. Uh, but those at the, the top end have been doing okay here. So the average is out, you see. Uh, and they always report the averages, make it look better. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit more about that consumer credit report. Uh, but uh, as to the rest of the news of the past week, a little bit of a round robin here I'd like to engage in, uh, sort of uh, following up on the, the loose ends of events that have been occurring uh, in recent weeks here. Of course, uh, you know, last week we talked about the railroad strike and the anti-labor legislation. Uh, 
anti-strike legislation that uh, the Democrats' friends of labor imposed here uh, in Congress, passed the laws um, banning a railroad strike, uh, and then uh, shut down a companion bill that would have provided at least a minimum of seven days paid sick leave for railroad workers who have nothing, uh, who have to use their vacation time or take time off without pay or use personal leave time when they can get it. You see, the problem in the railroads is that the railroads are, as I said last week, just to recap briefly, uh, the railroads are running with 30% fewer workers uh, than pre-COVID. Uh, so uh, they don't want everybody to take any time off, even when they're sick, you see. Um, and, of course, that means big profits uh, for the railroad companies, you know, 30% on your total wage bill. You know, that's an, a nice big uh, effect on your profit margins. And uh, they're experiencing record profits as a result, uh, but they don't want to give a uh, paid sick leave because, of course, if you got paid sick leave, you're going to take it. And then they're going to run into uh, their stringent policy of not allowing people time off. Uh, so that's the crux of the issue there uh, in the railroads, apart from the fact that a 24% uh, wage increase over five years uh, don't doesn't even make up for inflation. Uh, even in these major union agreements, you know, like last year we had uh, the Deer Deer D E E R E Deer Company uh, uh, Agricultural Implement Strike, uh, and the workers appeared uh, to get a decent percent settlement, but less than inflation still. Workers always fall for what's called nominal prices. They don't think in terms of, uh, most of them, in terms of uh, real real prices and real cost of living. Anyway, that was last week, and nothing's really happened. As I predicted, uh, there will not be a strike, even there's talk about wildcats uh, in the railroad industry. Uh, uh, I'm not going to go over the process by which uh, the politicians and uh, the very top level of the union leaders uh, get together and uh, uh, force their their rank and file into another vote and an acceptance of the contract. I'd be very surprised if there's any strike whatsoever uh, in railroads now. Uh, by the way, read my article uh, on um, railroad workers, quote, under the thumb, uh, in which I go into much more detail on what happened in negotiations and the processes of uh, of controlling uh, the rank and file. Uh, it's at uh, jackrasmus.com, which is my blog. Just take a look at the blog, your latest posting, uh, rather long article, 3,500 page uh, words uh, on the railroad strike, where, where it is and where it's going. Okay, so that's the round robin. Um, uh, Picking up, uh, you know, what's left of that issue. Uh, it was just announced today um, uh, that Cinema, uh, this the senator, Democratic senator, Kristen Cinema, remember her, along with uh, Joe Manchin, uh, pretty much shot down uh, uh, all of Bernie Sanders' proposals. Yeah, voted uh, with the Republicans pretty much, and uh, stopped uh, Build Back Better in its tracks uh, until Biden finally gave up, threw in the towel, and, uh, you know, 
gave it the deep six himself a year ago, roughly. Okay, Kristen Sinema just announced today that she's leaving the Democratic Party. Ooh, surprise, surprise. Says she's going to be an independent. Yeah, and isn't going to, you know, caucus with the Republicans. Well, is that going to change your votes? No. In other words, uh, all this talk about the Democrats, all this spin they're given that now that Warnock won in Georgia, uh, they have a, a mansion-proof <laughs> 51 to 49 uh, vote margin in the Senate. All that's nonsense, right? Uh, with Sinema going, quote, independent. You know how she's going to vote. So you're back to 50-50 in the Senate, de facto 50-50, uh, but a 50-50 in which uh, uh, the vice president can't even break a vote, so it's worse off. And Manchin's got even more power than he had before to block legislation. Yeah. So, in a sense, the Senate went over to Republicans without saying that she has. Well, she's been voting like a Republican ever since, you know. A real opportunist, you know. She ran, began running for office you know, years ago as a progressive in Arizona. Boy, she sure flipped. Yeah. Well, anyway, bottom line, uh, all this hype and spin about, oh, it's a big win in the Senate is just a lot of political BS. Right, the Democrats are worse off, worse off because it's de facto a fifty-fifty vote. Where again, you know, the Vice President Harris can't even break the vote, and Manchin's got control of the situation, even more so. Yeah, okay. So much for uh, the election uh, uh, wrap-up here. I'll be writing an article on my analysis of the election. You know, there's a lot of talk about, uh, uh, oh, you know, the Democrats were going to lose 40-plus seats as they did in 2010 and 1994. It's going to be a a real uh, debacle, and it didn't happen. And the Democrats, oh, big victory, big victory. You lost the House, you know, and now you don't have any control over the Senate that you thought you had. Big victory? I don't think so. Nothing really changed in the election, you see. But the only thing that really changed that was different in terms of the vote outcome was the Republican incumbent in Pennsylvania uh, didn't run, and it opened it up to Fetterman and Oz. You know, Oz is the crazy guy on the right, right? Um, you know, the Trump Trump buddy there? Uh, well, terrible candidate. And uh, so the... Democrats picked up one Senate seat in Pennsylvania. That's all the change. Because the guy incumbent didn't run. That's all that fundamentally changed. Nothing else changed. And that's the big the big point about the elections. Nothing really changed. Why didn't it change? Because as I'll write in the article on the election, check out my blog uh, you know, this weekend, uh as I will write and talked about before, um, neither party offered anything different than what they did in 2020. Nothing changed because nothing changed in terms of the two wings of the corporate party of America, Republicans and Democrats. 
Nothing changed in what they were offering the people. Well, I don't want to go into you know details. Just read the article here when it comes out. Or a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a show on the elections. But the article will have more update on that. The latest of which, of course, is this sentiment, cinema, <laughs> independence. Yeah. Okay, another thing uh, that I want to comment on in this round robin politically is uh, the way the U.S. mainstream media is going after Putin and his latest speech. You know, they take his speeches and they twist them, <laughs> right? Uh what Putin said in his latest speech is he won't use first strike, except if Russia is about to be attacked directly, nuclear itself. Well, that's exactly, or not even exactly, it's even not as aggressive as the U.S. first strike policy. The U.S. has a first strike nuclear policy that says the U.S. will strike nuclearly first uh, if it thinks that... Uh, uh, it's uh, in danger, uh, not even from nuclear. In other words, if there were a conventional war, conventional threat, uh, you know, let's let's say uh, some rogue uh, uh, opponent, China, Iran, or whatever, Russia, um, sinks a uh, U.S. aircraft carrier, right? Uh, well, for the U.S., that's justification for first nuclear strike. Well, you know, Putin, who never had a first strike at all, uh, is under great threat from NATO, uh, not only in the Ukraine, but now there's all kind of uh, maneuvers going on elsewhere in East Europe. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's trying to give a warning to the West that, well, you have a first strike nuclear policy, maybe we'll consider that too, well, but only if... Uh, you know, uh, Russia itself is existentially uh, threatened here. Well, that's being spun by the Western media saying, oh, he's talking about first strike, first strike, without saying that that's exactly what the U.S. has, too. And by the way, uh, you know, what's really scary is the U.S. is negotiating with Poland, a real reactionary uh, state here, Poland and the Baltics, uh, negotiating with Poland to put U.S. nuclear arms and missiles in Poland. In Poland. Uh, that's kind of scary. Well, you know, Putin is right. Uh, we're slouching towards uh, nuclear confrontation, which I've been saying for quite some time. Okay, so, uh, you know, that's the latest on uh, the uh, situation uh, in Ukraine, which I follow closely here. And we'll continue to follow closely because we're on the verge of a big Russian offensive this winter, which will be interesting to see how that turns out. Uh, okay, moving on. Uh, backtrack briefly to the railroad uh, anti-strike situation here. Uh, you know, uh, Biden uh, got a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of heat over that from labor. Yeah, uh, heat, but you know, no fire, just heat. But anyway, heat. So he's come out and uh, he's offered a solution here to what's called the multi-employer defined benefit pension plan. Uh, union plans uh, for 
uh, aggregating you know, small companies, smaller companies, you know, like trucking companies or or uh, uh, construction companies uh, can't afford a major pension plan. <clears throat> and for decades, there's been what's called a multi-employer pension plan system uh, where you know, pioneered by Teamsters and construction workers, uh, but also, you know, some other service companies and unions. Um, employers pay into a, a pension fund. Uh, multiple employers pay into the pension fund, uh, and that provides a defined benefit pension to uh, to the workers. Now, defined benefit pensions are not phony 401k plans. 401k plans were designed under Regan in order to destroy the union pension system, and it uh, has taken a big whack out of the defined benefit pension system. Most companies, except the very large ones, still under contract with unions, have uh, abandoned uh, the defined pension plan system, uh, multi-employer or, you know, industry, union industry employers, uh, and move to 401ks. 401ks are called uh, um, personal pension plans. You know, the big difference between 401ks and union defined benefit plans is that the company has no liability uh, in other words, under union plans, when they have a contract that says you will pay, <clears throat> pay each retiring worker so much uh, per month, per year service. So if I've been with a company uh, 20, 20 years and the pension formula says $50 per year service, you know, then it's uh, 20 times 50. And that's my uh, my monthly pension, and you're liable for that, Mister Employer. Uh, no matter what your um, your economic situation is, you have to pay that pension. You have that liability. Right? Uh, the, the defined benefit pension plans uh, originated in the 1940s, right after World War II. Uh, and uh, the government got involved and encouraged employers to, to to create these defined pension plans, defined benefit pension plans. Uh, and, of course, they were liable for the payments, which didn't matter too much then because most of the workforce was young, you see. And now he got older here in the 80s and 90s. Um, they didn't have to do much payouts. Uh, plus, the um, Employers, the companies had the advantage that um, uh, they could uh, include on their balance sheets, in other words, how well the company was doing, uh, the accumulation of the funds in the pension plan. It made it look like uh, uh, the the companies were doing better than they actually were, right? And, of course, CEOs... Uh, um, get a lot of their uh, compensation in stock and so forth based on the performance of the company. So the pension plans uh, uh, enable the CEOs to, to uh, you know, get bigger payouts at the end of the year. And they didn't have to pay a lot because the workforce was young, right? But by the time the 1980s came, the workforce was starting to retire. Uh, and, um, you know, a move was made uh, uh, actually under Carter, you know, uh, to create 401k plans, personal pension plans, 401k. In other words, the company would put uh, some co uh, 
contribution into your 401k if every year, or if you did, the company did. Uh, well, the advantage of the company was, uh, you know, it was voluntary. They didn't. They, they they could stop putting contributions in anytime they want, or lower the contribution anytime they want. And then the workers often uh, used the money uh, to buy their company a stock. Uh, so the money came back to the companies, you see, with 401ks. Uh, but the important thing was uh, with 401ks, employers were not liable to pay the worker anything. It was, you know, whatever you invested and got into your 401k plan, right? Uh, that was what you had to retire on. Uh, and if you did not invest, uh, you know, uh, in, in good judgment, uh, then you reached their time and you, you had very little in your 401k. And nothing was guaranteed, you see. Uh, if the stock market collapsed, your investments in your 401k collapsed and you had nothing when you retired. Uh, different than defined benefit pension plans. In defined benefit plans, you were guaranteed for the rest of your life so much per month, per year service. And if the employer, something happened and couldn't do it, uh, well, then the government stepped in and uh, took over the pension plan, uh, brought it into the PBOC, Government Agency Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, PBGC, and uh, the government provided less than what you had, but at least you didn't lose everything. Okay. And a lot of big companies, uh, you know, in the 80s, 90s, and aughts, uh, simply abandoned uh, their pension plans. All the airlines abandoned, even the unionized airlines abandoned their pension plans. They declared themselves bankrupt on paper, uh, dumped their pension plan, their defined benefit pension plan, dump it, uh, get rid of it. You know, give it over to the government, and then uh, voila, they were back in business again. Uh, and that was done, you know, by IBM and by U.S. Steel, and all the big guys did that. Uh, but the multi-employer pension, defined benefit pension, worked just like uh, I described, so much per year service. But what started happening... Uh, you know, decades, a couple of decades ago, was uh, the small business businesses, the you know, trucking companies, mostly trucking company, construction companies, um, just began withdrawing from the pension system, the multi-employer pension plan. Uh, and what that did was uh, those companies that were still members for the multi-employer plan uh, had to put more in the plan because these were defined benefits, guaranteed, you see. Uh, so, you know, those who dropped out, why did they drop out? Weren't they guaranteed by union contract? Weren't they liable? Well, what happened from the 70s on is that the deunionization occurred in small trucking and construction companies. Yeah, they started, the uh, government was helping them uh, get out of their union contracts altogether. So then once they got out, they got out of the pension plan, too. And uh, those that were left in the defined benefit multi-employer plan had to pay more. Well, this has been a problem for at least 15 years. And now Biden throws a sock to labor. He could have resolved, Democrats could have resolved this years ago. But now they're supposedly going to resolve it. In other words, the government will put some money in to save these plans. I don't know what else he's got in mind here to save these multi-employer plans, but we'll see.
All right, so uh, uh, that was an interesting development this past week in the wake of uh, uh, Biden, Pelosi, and others uh, lowering the boom on the railroad workers. We'll see where that goes. Okay, uh, moving on here. Um, been following for some time uh, the credit, debt and credit issue here, because when you have interest rates going up, the, the cost, of doing business rises, particularly if you're, quote, a zombie company. In other words, you're overloaded with debt already and and or your business is not generating very much revenue to cover your debt and your debt comes due or you can't pay it. So you've got to strike a deal with the bank, if you can, to roll over your debt. Right, reissue your debt, and the bank usually does that at a, at a higher interest rate, uh, stretches out the debt payment period, so you're, but their cash flow payment uh, for the month is lower. You see, that's what happens with zombie companies. A lot of that has happened with zombie companies. Uh, they haven't reached the point yet because the cost of rolling over, i.e. interest rates from the Fed, is rising, uh, but it hasn't broke their back yet. Right, uh, but now as you got recession, if it comes in deeper, well, the revenue side to pay the debt, to service the debt, is going to go down too. Uh, in other words, the cost of the debt goes up, the revenue goes down. Uh oh, zombie companies in trouble. Oh, what are they going to do? Well, the bank may make a decision. You know, you're not a good risk anymore. We're not going to roll over your debt, and bingo, bankrupt. And then you've got to sell off your assets and lay off all your workers. And then other zombie companies and banks see what's going on, and they, they start getting worried about, you know, their credit out to these zombie companies, right? Zombie companies usually are in debt uh, to what's called junk bonds or junk loans, high-yield debt, it's called. In other words, they got to pay 7 8 10% per month on the debt that they owe instead of, you know, uh, a, a solid company maybe paying four or five percent. Yeah, they got to pay double, double the debt. Uh, uh, you know, junk bond, high yield debt, or what's called uh, uh, sometimes uh, uh, triple B and below credit, right? Rating credit, top rating credit is A, you know, then A, double A, then triple A, and then you got. Triple B, uh, double B, single B, and then C. C are really a bad shape, right? Uh, that's corporate uh, um, bonds, which is debt. Say corporate debt is bonds. Uh, but then there's corporate uh, bank loans, right? And the worst of these are called the CLOs, right? Uh, leverage, leverage loans, and CLO loans, derivative of sort. Uh, and... Uh, both of those are looking a little shaky here in the U.S., the CLO market and uh, uh, below B uh, uh, junk bond market. Okay, so uh, I follow that, uh, and I follow banks and hedge funds and uh, uh, other, quote, shadow banks, you might say. Right, Shadow banks, the unregulated side of the banking industry. They're really banks. Uh, you know, private equity firms, investment banks, 
hedge funds, uh, they're, they're shadow banks that I see unregulated. Un, uh, and that's always where the financial crisis uh, originates, is, is, is in the shadow side. And then it spills over to the commercial banks, you know, J.P. Morgan and others uh, like that, uh, who provide loans to uh, these uh, shadow banks, you see, because the shadow banks don't have depository uh, members, you know, where you and I set up a checking savings account, we give our money uh, to uh, Wells Fargo, whatever. Those are uh, depository banks, commercial banks. Um, shadow banks don't. They just take money from uh, uh, big investors, and uh, big investors want bigger, big returns. Uh, so, uh, you know, big returns mean uh, big risk, take big risk, and they get in trouble uh, when uh, you have recession, inflation like we're having. They get in trouble. Uh, and then there's no one to bail them out uh, because the commercial banks, uh, you know, tell these other shadow banks, you know, treat them like junk, junk, uh, uh, you know, junk, junk bond zombies, right? And say, no, we're not going to give you, we're not going to roll over your borrowing debt anymore. You know, that's that's what really happened a lot in 2008, nine, right? It was the shadow banks that went under, dragged down the other banks. Uh, we had a financial crisis. And the financial crisis uh, froze up the uh, banking industry in general, and uh, you know non-bank companies couldn't get loans, and they they began shutting down, laying off. That was the Great Recession. Well, watching that for current situation, we don't have a crisis that uh, the banking shadow banking system has precipitated. Uh, we have. Uh, uh, growing stress in the real economy, not the financial economy. But that real economy could spell, spill over to the financial side, particularly, uh, you know, the shadow banking side. And we've been seeing cracks uh, in the global financial system uh, that have begun occurring here with the worst case uh, indebted companies. Uh, and then their revenue is not sufficient to cover their principal and interest payments on their debt. Uh, okay, you know, uh, we've been watching FTX, you know, the uh, company there uh, that's gone bankrupt with uh, great fraud because uh, it's been unregulated. The whole crypto thing's unregulated. But that's going to change pretty quick. Uh, contagion beginning to spread to other um, crypto companies. That's been Obvious, and now there's some evidence that it's spreading to hedge funds. Well, why hedge funds? Well, hedge funds loan the money. Um, you know, another shadow banks loan the money, speculate to uh, the fast-growing crypto sector that was fast-growing, right? So when the crypto companies can't pay their debt on funds borrowed from the hedges, well, then the hedges. I uh, have to assume that they're in trouble when they do. Okay, so that's uh, something to watch here. The other thing I'm watching, uh, besides hedge funds and cryptos, is uh, uh, the commercial banking system in Europe. You know, always been the, uh, the sick boy of the global capitalist banking system, unable really to compete with the Americans and the, even the British Right. And there's a company there called Credit Suisse, big commercial bank out of Switzerland, Credit Suisse, uh, that's gotten in trouble. Uh, 
uh, originally over a year ago because the money it loaned to uh, a shadow bank called Archigos, Archigos collapsed, and uh, that had a big impact on Credit Suisse, and everyone started looking at Credit Suisse, and uh, its stock price began falling because when they looked at it, it wasn't very well run. Uh, so Credit Suisse in the last six months has been trying to uh, uh, get back up on its feet. And when a bank's in trouble or any comp- company's in cr- trouble like that, before they go bankrupt, uh, their lenders force them to sell off uh, assets of the company. And usually the best assets, because those are the only things that other, other competitors are willing to buy. Uh, and that's what's been happening with Credit Suisse here, Suisse. Uh, they almost went under, uh, but their lenders stepped in and other investors stepped in uh, to try to uh, refloat it, right, by issuing what's called uh, new stock, a rights issue, a rights issue of stock, which, you know, simply put is get your current stockholders to buy or convert uh, by a new issuing of stock, turn in the old stock, which has been falling in value, and get the new stock, right? Well, Credit Suisse has raised $4.3 billion. And, oh, it looks like, oh, you know, they're back on their feet. No, no, no. Uh, that's for paying for downsizing and shedding their best assets, right? To pay for the losses. Uh, they're going to lay off 9,000 workers, and they're going to shed their investment bank and stock trading and bond trading segments and become only what's called a wealth management company. Wealth management means, okay, you're going to uh, use your rich customers and invest on behalf of your rich customers. Well, you know, that's the end of Credit Suisse because that's not a very good sector of the finance industry to enter. Wealth management, everybody's there, (laughs) you know. so uh, Credit Suisse is, you know, its days are still numbered, I think. And it's such a big player, you know, if it goes under, it's going to send shockwaves throughout the uh, European banking system. All right. Okay, another interesting development this past week is Exxon, the oil company, announced $50 billion in new stock buybacks for its shareholders. That's, you know, buying back stock is one way that corporations uh, funnel uh, their profits to their shareholders. Another is dividend payments, right? Dividend payments. Now, here's here's some shocking numbers for you, right? Since 2010, 2010, Fortune 500 companies have distributed to their shareholders through stock buybacks plus dividend payments every year, a total of $15 trillion. Fortune 500, they've been funneling, no, these huge profits they make from price gouging including, right? They're funneling back (laughs) to their shareholders to the tune of $15 trillion. Under Obama, under Obama, the annual average, roughly for eight years, of 
stock buybacks and dividend payments uh, was about eight to nine hundred billion dollars a year under Obama, rising, rising from about uh, seven hundred billion. So you know, right after the Great Recession, every year creeping up, right, creeping up, creeping up. And I think the last year, two thousand sixteen, under Obama, it was a little over a trillion dollars. Well, under Trump, this first three years, it averaged $1.3 trillion every year for three years. And that was $4 trillion. Corporations distributed to their shareholders. Which, you know, interesting, if you want to throw numbers around, was about the amount of the Trump tax cuts for investors and corporations and multinational corporations in particular in 2018, passed in 2000, well, late 2017, took effect three years. So, you know, you've got well over $15 trillion. You talk about the causes of income inequality in this country. Well, yeah, stagnating wages, especially in real terms. You know, you hold down the payment of wages to the working class, the total amount, and then you boost up the income sources for the capitalists and their investor friends. And that's how you get income inequality and wealth equality, too, because, you know, the more income you throw off to your investors, the more they invest in assets, and that becomes wealth inequality. And then wealth inequality uh, throws off income, and that increases income inequality. So, you know, income and wealth inequality uh, feed on each other, and that's been escalating while wages have been stagnant. Okay, and that's global, you know, that's capitalist inequality going on big time here. Well, just keep in mind, Exxon announces $50 billion. The other oil companies will quickly follow suit, as they always do. They'll probably give, uh, you know, this year $200 billion in buybacks to uh, uh, their shareholders. And other companies are going to do the same. We're going to be well over a trillion dollars again in 2022. You know, there was a, a little bit of a retreat in these numbers, uh, buybacks uh, and dividend payouts during the, the COVID, COVID years recession, 2020 and early 2021. Uh, but now that's reversed again. They're back on track and huge amounts of uh, stock buyback and dividend payouts going on. Uh, okay, that's uh, that topic here. Uh, and then last week, too, we had this uh, price cap thing uh, that the European Union, G7, U.S. Uh, introduced on Russian oil, right? Uh, they said that, uh, uh, okay, uh, no one's going to buy Russian oil for more than $60 a barrel. In other words, we all agree, we Europeans agree, that uh, you know none of us will pay more than $60 a barrel. At the same time, uh, they announced uh, uh, the ending of all ship-based Russian imports, oil imports to Europe. In other words, on, on the 5th of this uh, December here, uh, all ship-based Oil, you know, oil will go by pipeline. It'll go by, it'll go by ship. So, uh, you know, they're trying to uh, sanction Russia. They're trying to reduce the amount of oil revenue Russia gets because 
you know, the more it gets, uh, uh, the more it can keep its economy going, the more it can invest in military goods and so forth, right? So they want to cut off <clears throat> the revenue and income for the Russian government here and uh, by banning all of the uh, uh, imported ship-based oil to Europe from Russia and uh, also declaring uh, no more than $60 uh, a barrel, presumably here, I guess, for uh, what little remains of, uh, of uh, pipeline oil going into Russia, uh, Western Europe, uh, that they can really reduce Russia Russia's access to income. Well, Russia's just selling more to the rest of the world. Russia, in the latest month, Russia revenue from imports uh, or exports of oil was at its highest level ever a peak. Uh, and they're discounting. Russia is discounting its oil. You know, the oil it's selling, selling more oil because it's discounting it by 20, 25%. Selling a lot of oil to India and China and so forth, uh, 20, 25%. So, Russia is selling all its oil at less than six, around sixty, less than sixty dollars a barrel, and the Europeans say, "Oh, no one can buy it at more than sixty dollars a barrel." And when they say that, uh, they're not really saying Europe, because Europe's getting its oil from the U.S. now and its natural gas. It's really a signal to the rest of the world that you better not buy Russian oil at more than $60 a barrel. It's a secondary sanction. In other words, it's not sanctioned on Russia, but uh, on Russia's customers. And how is it going to inf uh, enforce this? Well, if it finds out if you know, it being EU, G7, U.S., if they find out a country has purchased Russian oil at more than $60 a barrel, which it isn't because Russia's not selling it at more than 60 <laughs> you know, um, if it does, uh, well, then the sanction on this other country, third-party third country, uh, will occur by a decision to deny uh, oil tankers any insurance it sells to that country again. Presumably, if it sells Russian oil again, I don't know. Maybe any oil. Uh, but in other words, the West is going to sanction these other countries uh, by denying it uh, shipments through through oil tankers because it will not allow. Uh, these tankers to be insured. Tankers will will not ship any go anywhere if they don't have shipping insurance. Right? And it just so happens most of the shipping insurance companies are in Europe. So that's the vehicle that they see that they're going to, you know, enforce by which enforce uh, on the rest of the world uh, not to buy Russian oil at. Uh, more than $60 a barrel. Well, Russia says, you know, anybody who does that, we're not even going to bother selling you the oil. You know, that's their response. Uh, it's caused a bit of a, uh, this whole price cap thing in Europe, a bit of a, of a problem. You know, uh, Poland wanted $30 a barrel price cap. Well, that would a bit you know, take a big bite, uh, but uh, they didn't get it. You know, Poland and the Baltics, they're always the most radical right in all of NATO. 
and uh, the U.S. is riding that radical right in Eastern Europe to really reestablish its hegemony over NATO. And, you know, the, the Germans and the French are left uh, in the dust uh, and just have to go along because the majority is really going along. Okay. Um, so it's nonsense. Nonsense, as I've said before, for the G7 EU to think they can control the price of uh, global oil, crude oil, by controlling demand for it. You see, uh, global market prices really drive, uh, you know, supply and demand and speculators and futures markets really drive the, the price of oil. And, and you can't uh, manipulate that on the demand side any more than uh, Saudis could manipulate it on the supply side. They failed. Well, you're not going to do it on the demand side. But, you know, it doesn't matter here because they're not allowing any oil shipments into Europe from Russia anyway, unlike the rest of the world, you know, so they can't, they're not going to penalize themselves since they decided to cut it off. And you still got, you know, they still quietly got Russian oil through pipelines coming into Europe. Although Russia says it's going to cut that off too. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, it makes uh, Europe more economically dependent on U.S. than ever before. Uh, not just for oil, for natural gas. The U.S. is supplying uh, uh, Europe with natural gas at three times the price that they used to, by the way. Uh, and uh, the same with uh, oil. Uh, but the global global price of oil is falling, you see. $60 a barrel won't mean that much. Uh, if the price keeps falling. And the price is falling uh, because of the slowing of the global economy. In fact, uh, the IMF just came out and said, oh, we're in, we're in trouble here. Uh, the economy is slowing faster than we, we uh, had predicted here. And uh, uh, China, please open up faster after COVID uh, to help the global economy, is what the latest report uh, from the IMF has, has said. Uh, so what you've got is uh, the Saudis and others desperately trying to cut the supply in order to keep the global price of oil up per barrel crude uh, while uh, the demand uh, softens, weakens significantly. Okay, uh, let's talk about the uh, PPI, the Consumer Price Index, and the Federal Consumer Credit Report here that came out last week. As I said, PPI, Producer Price Index, is uh, uh, cost of uh, uh, price prices for goods and services services sold to businesses that businesses then pass on if they can. Uh, well, the numbers just came out today, and uh, on an annual average. Uh, the PPI is increasing at 7.4 percent, uh, compares to the previous three months in which we were at uh, the low to mid 8 percent, which compares to the first half of the year when which prices were consistently over 11 percent, first half of 22. So, you know, in the third quarter, second quarter, Last third quarter, uh, 
we have a little over 8%, and now we have a 7.4%. Well, it's moderating. Yeah, it's moderating. You know, as the Fed slows the economy down. But as I've been saying, and we'll talk about much more detail next week, the Fed is in a contradiction. The capitalist economy has changed in the 21st century, and Federal Reserve monetary policy is increasingly ineffective in trying to stabilize the economy by raising or lowering rates, you know, which is what the Fed does, right? Okay, in what way is there a contradiction? Uh, well, once again, I'll talk about it more next week. And, I, and by the way, I talked about it a lot in my 2017 book, Central Bankers at the End of Their Ropes. Uh, if you want to read some reviews, go to my website and blog. But anyway, uh, in that book, I argued that because of uh, financialization, global financialization and globalization in trade, uh, the Fed uh, raising interest rates cannot slow down the economy unless it raises interest rates significantly. And if it raises significantly, it begins to produce this financial stress that I talked about, right? Zombie companies can't roll over their debt, you know, and that could be the case for state and local government, or it could be the case for uh, government entities. Right. Okay. Uh, it's increasingly ineffective, meaning, uh, it has to raise rates significantly, or as economists would say, it's, uh, you know, inelastic. I won't get into that uh, demand here. Um, conversely, as well, lowering interest rates does not stimulate the real economy to growth. Raising them does not have as much effect in slowing the real economy down. But lowering them does not have as much effect on stimulating it either. In other words, there's increasingly sectors of the economy, big business and so forth, uh, that aren't dependent, and the finance system has changed, are not dependent uh, upon interest rates to continue doing business. Uh, they have other ways of raising capital and investing, and other places they can go in the world, you know, if you're a big corporation. The Fed does not have as much influence over you. Well, where is all this money that the Fed's been pumping into the economy? Nine trillion dollars plus, you know, trillions more that have rolled over and been paid um, since 2009. Where's it all gone? Well, most of it's gone into financial markets instead of the real economy. And that's why we got these stock bond derivative currency bubbles over the last 10, 12 years. Most of the money goes there. Uh, doesn't go into the real economy. Well, that's the contradiction, you see. Fed interest rate cuts aren't as effective the money flows where it should, or it flows offshore, not just in the financial markets. Uh, and uh, raising rates, the Fed has to raise them even more. Well, the Fed's gonna raise rates to about five, five and a quarter percent here in, by early next year. And that's going to stop because it knows, you know, raising, raising rates higher increases the 
potential of financial uh, instability. You know, more credit suisses, right? Uh, more FDXs, etc. Uh, so it's gonna it's gonna pause and uh, see how long, uh, how much effect it has on inflation going forward. Probably paused around February, March. Okay. Uh, I've been saying for quite some time that you get five, five and a half percent. That, that's the ceiling beyond which if you keep raising rates, you start having uh, ex- increasing uh, financial instability. Uh, so the Fed seems to agree with that, I think. Right. Which is quite different in the past, you know. And during the Reagan period, the Fed raised rates to eighteen percent. It didn't cause any financial crash, you know. Brought down the the auto and construction industries, shook out all the inflation in demand. But today, the problem with inflation is mostly supply side, and the Fed can't do anything about that. Yeah, they can shake out uh, some of the eight uh, percent average CPI and seven and a half percent average PPI that may be demand based, uh, but not the supply side based. Without raising rates even much higher and risking financial instability. Okay, so going to the PPI report, as I said, seven point four percent, not much down from you know maybe a percent. Average from the previous three months uh, over the summer here. But if you look in the composition, though, the truth is always in the details. And if you look in the, in the composition of the PPI report, right, uh, total final demand for producers' goods are stuck at the same level per month as over the last three months. Total final demand. In other words, what businesses actually pay for producer prices, right? And that's broken down into total final or final demand for services and final demand for goods. And this is what's interesting under the covers when you look here, right? Uh, services, demand for services has particularly risen in the, the financial side. Uh, banks and so forth are charging people more. Well, of course, interest rates are going up, right? And their income is going up. So uh, services side is going. But if you look at the good side, you know, this is where it's really interesting. Producer prices for final goods, right? What you see is energy prices have come down last month, but food prices continue to accelerate, especially meat prices and as I said at the beginning of the show, vegetable prices up 43%, right? Food prices at the producer level are rising at the fastest rate they have for all of this year, especially processed foods, right? So food prices are a big red flag within the PPI here. And have you been going to grocery store? Uh, You know, or buying stuff for uh, Thanksgiving or for Christmas. You know what I'm talking about. You know. I go to a grocery store periodically just to see what's going on and, of course, to eat. Uh, But who who can afford going out to eat anymore, right? Except maybe Burger King. Uh, It's crazy. You can't go out for dinner anymore. 
you know, Christ, you pay $25 for a plate of spaghetti now. Uh, I buy my own and mix up my own sauce, and it's better than the restaurant stuff anyway. But, you know, food prices at the PPI level, which are going to spill over to the CPI level, are rising fast. And, of course, at the CPI level, rents are rising fast as well. Uh, housing prices are beginning to abate because of interest rates, which will have an effect on construction sector. Uh, but rents are still going up, you know. And other key prices are still going up, particularly food. Uh, but it is true you got a little bit of a of a recovery here in uh, gas prices and diesel prices. Okay, but they're off, offset by food prices. Anyway, uh, that's the picture. And uh, while the headlines say oh seven point four instead of you know eight point four, uh, underneath it, you know, it's almost all due to the gasoline prices moderating. And uh, not due to uh, rising food prices and rents. Well, it will be interesting to see the CPI report next week uh, in those particular areas. So uh, I'll, I'll give a detailed report on the CPI uh, next week and the Fed decision, as I said at the beginning, important events next week. Uh, well, what about consumer credit? Just quickly, uh, this has come out by the Federal Reserve. They produced a consumer credit report, the G.19 report here, right? And, uh, wow, uh, boy, have credit, has credit really risen? You know, to the extent you've got consumer consumption still going on, it's uh, significantly credit-driven, not because of wage increases, right? Uh, and it's not savings because savings rates are down, to where they were before COVID. So whatever, uh, you know, people were able to accumulate uh, because of the government uh, uh, relief checks and so forth, that's all gone. That's been gone for six months. But they're buying more on debt. Just to give you a figure, consumer credit outstanding level in uh, 2019 total, uh, roughly $4.2 trillion consumer credit. Outstanding household credit, outstanding 2019, 4.2 trillion. Uh, what is it in the third quarter annual rate going on here? 4.7 trillion. 4.7 trillion as of this uh, September, you know, for the whole year. That's up 500 billion dollars. Consumers have gone into debt 500 billion dollars since pre-COVID. You know, uh, most of that, most of that in uh, autos and uh, home prices and uh, credit cards. Okay, uh, that's it. Uh, we'll uh, once again next week. Very important. We'll be talking about those two reports coming out, and I'm sure politically there'll be a lot of news of interest. 